Okay. Good morning, everyone. If you've got a Bible, can you turn to Exodus chapter 20, please? Exodus chapter 20. We are starting a new series today in the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are around 300 words in our English translations, and they are something that many, many people, particularly in the West, will have heard of. If you say the Ten Commandments, people are familiar with that idea. However, if you ask them what the Ten Commandments were, then people start to struggle. They've done studies and the like. And pe- although people may know the Ten Commandments, they've made a film about it a while back, they actually don't know what they are. And I just, a little challenge you today, could you name the Ten Commandments? If, I, if you were given time and a notebook, an opportunity, could you then get them in order? But these Ten Commandments, although known as a concept largely unknown by people, are incredibly influential. They are the foundation for most of Western kind of law and society have been formed out of these commands that appeared thousands of years ago. They have an enduring quality that has shaped civilization to this day. Um, And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next 10 weeks looking at these 10 commandments and delving into each one, one by one, and seeing how it applies to us. And probably 100 years plus ago, the Ten Commandments were used, along with a couple of other things, as a key sort of discipleship tool for new believers. It was one of the things that if you became a Christian, you were taken through and you were kind of asked to learn, even memorize the Ten Commandments. It was basic discipleship, yet to the modern church, a lot of it's been lost Someone came and spoke to me this morning saying, I'm looking forward to this series because they've been a Christian many, many years and they've never heard anyone teach on the Ten Commandments as such. Yet, going back a hundred years, these were key. Along with the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, these were the basics of um, Christian discipleship, what they are. So our plan, hopefully, God willing, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer next term and hopefully the Apostles' Creed by the end of the year. So you will have all the tools for basic discipleship. But we're going to start now with... The Ten Commandments. A few books to help you if you want to get into this. We're going to be looking at this over the next uh, ten weeks. The, um, the youth are going to be doing some of this. Also, uh, the kids' work, when they finish their current short series, they're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. So it's going to be around a while. Um, if you want to read on it, the first one I'd recommend here is for, for everyone. This is called The Ten Commandments, handy title, by Kevin DeYoung, The Green Book. This is a great one to just, if you've never learned anything on The Ten Commandments, have a read of this. You can get it online, Amazon, other places. Ten Commandments, excellent one to start with. The second one, which I would highly recommend, is called Written in Stone by Philip Graham Ryken. This is an excellent one. If you've been a believer a little while, it's a little bit more than this, but not inaccessible. But read this one. I found this one super helpful. Gets you through. It's got an excellent intro, a few chapters on the background, the context, the law, how we apply it. Then goes through each of the Ten Commandments. So have a little read of that one. And the last one, if you are just hardcore... You can go back old, old school. I think it was 1692 this was first published. The Ten Commandments by Thomas Watson, a Puritan writer. I'm working my way through it. And it is good stuff, but of course, because it was written X hundred years ago, hard work. But if you want to try a challenge, try reading that, Ten Commandments by Thomas Watson. I've also got two copies here of the Written in Stone one, if you want, that are going for free. So if you want to just come and grab them, they are there. Please come and help yourself. Don't take mine, because I'm still using them. But those ones are free for you to read and have a look. There you go. Enjoy. Now, before we get into the Ten Commandments, the law of God, let's talk a little bit about the law generally. If we read our Bibles, the first five books of the Bible are known collectively as the law. 
And they sum up that first bit, and there are certain sort of elements of the Jewish faith that only believe those first five books. And with, contained within them is narrative, but also a lot of law, particularly if you go to the book of Leviticus. It contains law after law after law, as well as finding the Ten Commandments. There's all sorts of other things in there. And the law can be broken down as a whole into sort of three groups. You have the ceremonial law, you have the civil law, and then you have the moral law. The ceremonial law is everything to do with sacrifices and the tabernacle and the temple and the holy days and the sin offering and the guilt offering and those kind of things. Then you get the civil law, which was to do with how the nation of Israel was to be governed, how the the legal system was. And if you read through it, there's laws about how the legality work and how the court system work and bringing accusations. And then finally you have the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments sort of bit, which is how you're supposed to live in relation to other people. So that's how the law sort of breaks down as a whole. And as we read our Bibles, we find what was the purpose of this law? Because anyone ever read some of these Old Testament passages, ever read the Bible in a year and kind of covered those stuff? And frankly, you're reading through Leviticus and it suddenly gets like, what am I reading? (laughs) Why is this stuff here in our Bible? Why is it important? Well, the Bible tells us the law serves a very, very important purpose. First of all, it shows us how to live. It shows us how to live, how to, how, what is right from wrong, from God's perspective, how we live. Also, the law restrains sin. You ever thought about that? The law restrains sin. Because if you know that this is the law and you know this is the consequence for breaking the law, you're less liable to break it. Why do we drive at the speed limit? Because we don't want to get three points on our license, which will eventually lead to a ban and a fine and a mandatory kind of uh, driving sort of training session about the horrors of driving too fast. That's one of the reasons why we don't. So the law can restrain sin. But the law's most important purpose is to show us the need for a saviour. Because when we look at the law and when we see the law and when we read the law, what do we suddenly realise? We can't keep it. We fail repeatedly. So the law reveals sin and it shows us our need for salvation. Because when we look at some of the law, you'll realize, I can't keep this. It is beyond me. But there's good news because the law has been fulfilled in Christ. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. If we think about the ceremonial law, the sacrifices and the temple and the guilt offering and the sin offering and the holy days and all these things... As New Testament believers, we do not follow those. We haven't killed anything this morning yet. Some of you parents might have thought about it, but there are consequences for that. So the Lord has restrained you from doing that. But we're not going to do that because Christ fulfilled it. Why? Because he was the ultimate sacrifice, the book of Hebrews tells us. We don't need to sacrifice anything more because Christ has come and been that sacrifice. He has fulfilled it. All that has gone away. He's made away. There's a new temple Temple of his people, by his spirit. They don't have to go to a physical temple. It's been done away with. The civil law has been fulfilled in Christ because no longer is God's people a particular ethnic group in a particular geographical location. We are now spread among all nations and all peoples and all tribes. So there is no need for a civil law to govern the people of God because we are subject to the laws of the nations that we are a part of as we spread out all over the world. But then finally we have the moral law, which is then repeated in the New Testament. Christ fulfilled it perfectly when he came on the earth, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death. 
And so this is still binding on us, which is why the Ten Commandments have an incredible relevance to us today. They are still binding. They've been repeated in the New Testament. We'll see as we go through. So they are something we should still honor and look at. So if you found Exodus 20, we're going to dive in. Let's just context this passage for a minute. If we go back to the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything was good. Man rebelled, man fell, everything went wrong from that point. And we had a downward hill of kind of uh, problem after problem, sin after sin, that mankind got themselves into. God then comes to a man named Abraham. And by grace, he chooses him and says, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. So your descendants will be like the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to take you into a land. I'm going to promise you. You're like, wow, that's Abraham. Abraham then has a son, Isaac, who inherits the promise, who has a son, Jacob, who inherits the promise, who has 12 sons who inherit the promises that God gave Abraham. Those are the most famous of those sons would be Joseph, and we have that story at the end of Genesis. He goes down into Egypt. The people of God then in Egypt multiply and grow as per God's promise to Abraham. But what happens? We get to the beginning of the book of Exodus. They are slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh... The old Pharaoh is gone who knew them. The new Pharaoh has come and he is a tyrant. And he oppresses God's people and he treats them as slaves and they have to work hard. So what does God do? God sends a redeemer, one to get them out of slavery. His name was Moses. He calls him and he sends him back and he says, hey, go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. And so we have all that thing, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, if you've seen the film, You'll know what happens. Plagues come. God sends plagues, plague after plague after plague, ten plague, final plague, death of the firstborn. Finally, Pharaoh relents. Yes, they can go. God says, right, leave my people out. I want you to take them to the mountain so they can worship me. They come out. Pharaoh changes his mind. Red Sea, army is destroyed. Cross the Red Sea. They're now in the wilderness. They are a freed people. And they come before the mountain of God that he had asked Pharaoh, um, Moses to bring him to when he'd been free from Pharaoh. So that's where we pick up the story. And as we dive in to read this, I want us to remember a few things. When we read the Ten Commandments, they come from God. This is God's law. This is God speaking to his people. And so they demonstrate, when someone speaks, particularly in the Bible, it, that they speak out of their character and who they are. So when God speaks to his people, he is revealing something of himself in what he is communicating to his people. The second thing to remember is that the people he is speaking to are free. They are no longer slaves. God has redeemed them. He has brought them out of slavery. They were hopeless and helpless in Egypt. They were under a tyrant who ruled them. They had no way out. And they were destined to just live out their lives there and live as slaves and die of slaves. That's all that happened. God saved them. Now that they have been saved, now that they have come out of slavery, now that they are free, God comes to speak to them and reveal his law to them. It's why we entitled the series Free to Live. Because God is speaking to free people. He is no longer speaking to slaves These are his free people. These are his treasured possession, it says in Exodus 19. He loves them. He's brought them out. And he's now talking to them. The Ten Commandments are not a way for you to earn God's favor. They weren't a way for the people of Israel to earn God's favor. They already had it. And in that context, 
God speaks. So let's just read the, um, the first verse. Can you put the first verse up? Which is um, the beginning of um, Exodus 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When I said God reveals his character, this is what he reveals. Three things out of this sort of beginning intro, this preface to these commandments. He says to them, from the mountain, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Number one, he is a covenant-keeping God. He is a covenant-keeping God. Back in Genesis chapter 12, he made a covenant, a binding agreement, a binding arrangement with Abraham to do something. To bless him, to make him a mighty nation, to give him a land. And God is reminding them in the beginning, I'm that God. I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. I'm the one who is keeping my um, covenant that I made with Abraham. Originally it was with one man, and he responded in faith. Now it is a nation. The commentators tell us there must be maybe a million of them who had come out of uh, slavery in Egypt. So the nation had grown. It was kind of fulfilling what God had spoken to Abraham. He was going to make them a mighty nation. And we've looked at the book of Joshua, which comes after this, about them taking the land. And so that fulfillment is coming as well. But God is reminding them, I'm this covenant-keeping God. I spoke to your forefathers all those years ago, and I am keeping that God. The next one, he shows his redeeming love to them. Redemption is just the coming out of slavery. They were under this tyrant who controlled them, hopeless and helpless, and God freed them. I brought you out of slavery. You were stuck. (laughs) You had no hope. You were nowhere. And I came and rescued you. I remembered my promise. My heart was set upon you, not because you were the best or the the biggest, the brightest. No, just because I chose to love you. He acted in their life. He's not a passive God who sits back. He is someone who is active and in control. He shows his great love for them in this process. And in Exodus 19, he describes Israel as his treasured possession. That's how much I love you. That is the love I have set upon you as my people, says the Lord to them, to remind them. And the third thing he says to them, is, reminds them of, is that he is holy, holy, holy. These words came from the mountain that they had come to, Mount Sinai. And on the top of that mountain, we've heard about mountains, But on the top of that mountain, there was fire and clouds and thunder and noise. It was terrifying. So much so that the people didn't want to go near it. Moses got them out of slavery and says, hey, let's go worship the Lord. And they saw the Lord on the mountain and was like, we'll just wait here. We'll let you go up and talk to him. We're just going to stay at our distance. Why? Because he is a holy God. He is set apart. There is nothing impure about him. He is other than us, another order in himself. Sin cannot be tolerated in his presence. He is completely pure. And so when he manifests himself, they even can't even see him. He's hidden behind these clouds because of his great holiness. The word holy is the most common word in the Bible to describe God. In, number, in sheer numbers, it comes up again and again and again. When God called Moses at the burning bush, which kind of had led up to this, what did the voice from the bush, what was the first thing it said to Moses? Take off your sandals, because where you're standing is 
holy ground. We're coming to the presence of God. This is holiness. And so when God is speaking, he is speaking out of his holy and pure character. So, we finally got to our first commandments. A few comments on the commandments in general as we go through them. There are ten of them. Listen to them. We're going to go through them one by one. Each commandment, as we look at it, there's a few things to remember about it. First of all, is each commandment really is almost a heading to a category. So some of them are very specific, and they say something like, you shall not commit adultery. But actually behind that is a whole category of things. So the danger is we can take them very legalistically and think of one thing. But actually they, they talk to a whole category of attitudes and life actions. So they're not just finite in what we read. There's much more behind them. Behind them. They have a, both a positive and negative aspect. Some of them are framed positively. Honor your father and mother. It's positive. You shall not is a negative framing. But both of them have positive and negative aspects. If there's something you shall not be doing, there is going to be some flip side of that is saying something you should be doing. If it's thou shalt not steal, the positive would be be generous and gracious with everything God has given you. And so when we approach the commandments, there's both sides. The other thing to remember about them is they are both external and internal. So often there's an external action that we might do or something we should refrain from doing. But also behind it, there are internal attitudes of the heart that should be examined as well. Because it goes way beyond kind of just paying lip service and being outwardly obedient. We have to be inwardly assenting to it as well. So, shall we look at the first commandment? It says this. You shall have no other gods before me. That's it. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment that God speaks to his people. Bear in mind, he's brought them out of slavery. They've come to the mountain to worship. There's been fire and smoke and thunder. And the voice comes from the cloud and it says, You shall have no other gods before me. The first in a list is often the most significant. The first one is the one in the place of preeminence. It's the one you read first. It's the one you think about the most. And there is no, uh, this is the true for the commandments. This one becomes the foundation for everything else. Commentators of old said, if you keep this one, you keep all the others. This is the key. This is the linchpin to it all. So God has come to his people that he has just set free and talking them how to live. And he says, you shall have no other God but me. The context of this for the people of Israel, they've been in slavery for over 400 years in the land of Egypt. What do we know about Egypt? From our kind of history lessons at school, it was a polytheistic society, which means it had many gods, lots of gods. It had gods for everything with funny names like Ra and Anubis and Horus and Osiris and Set. And they covered all sorts of aspects of life, death and fertility, and the harvest, and war. Even the sun had a god. Even Pharaoh himself was worshipped as a god. So in Egypt, it was normal for there to be many gods, many idols, many um, temples, many kind of holy days and feasts to recognize all these gods. And each one had been honored in its own way. And if you didn't sacrifice to this God over here, then something would happen in that area. And so this was just the culture they'd grown up and the air they'd breathed. 
And God had set his face against that. If you go back to the ten plagues in Egypt, commentators say that each of the ten plagues was specifically focused against a key one of the Egyptian gods. For instance, Ra was the sun god. So God said, right, darkness. Ra has no power. Even Pharaoh. You think he's a god? I'm going to kill all the firstborn. Let's see if he can stop that. So there are all these gods in their society. And it was normal for the ancient world. Many cultures had uh, many gods. Think of ancient Greece. Uddhas of gods on Mount Olympus. Many others around them. That was just normal for them. And so God speaks into this. First thing he says is, you shall. This is an active command. This is something you are to do. It's not something passive. It's not something you can sit back with. You need to take this seriously. You are to move forward. He says, you shall. And he's talking to you, the people. Not just to Moses, who might be receiving the command. He's everyone. You shall have. And he says, no other gods. The people of Israel were were to worship God alone. They were to be exclusive and to reject all other so-called gods. He would not accept any rivals. This command is without precedent, I read in one of the books, in the ancient world. Because of the polytheistic kind of... Uh, culture. This is like the first time when an ancient people have been told you only get to worship one. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. And the reality is, we know biblically, is there are no other gods. People call them gods, people give names to things, but actually there is no other God. And he says, you are to worship me alone. And he uses this phrase, interesting phrase, you shall have no other gods before me. What that means, the literal meaning behind that, is basically before my face. That's the essence of the meaning. You shall have no other gods before my face. You shall have no other gods in my presence, he is saying. It would be like if you brought another god into his presence, it would be like insulting someone to their face. That's the essence behind it. God is saying, when you look on my face, when you are focused on me, you don't get to bring anything else into that. You don't get to look at anyone else. You don't get to go anyone else. Following me is an all or nothing deal. And it speaks of a couple of things. The first thing is it speaks of relationship. Because if you are face to face with someone, looking in their eyes, turn to the person next to you, look into their eyes. Yeah, everyone gets suddenly gets a little bit awkward there. I could hear that. You want me to do what? I mean, I, I, mean, I have to live with them. I don't want to look at them. But looking, go on, do it. Go on, try it. Do it. Joe's not, Joe won't do it. Some people are uncomfortable, like, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> when you look into someone's face, it speaks of relationship. It speaks of communication. It speaks of I'm giving you my focus. Have you ever had those situations when you're trying to talk to someone and you're like, I don't think, look at me. I have to do it with my boys a lot. Look at me. Therefore, I can communicate with you. I'm not communicating the back of your head when you're watching the telly or, you know, or doing something else. Look at me. It's about relationships. It's about connection. So when God says, you should have no other gods before me, it's about relationship. And it's the very opposite of what they would have experienced in Egypt with idol after idol after idol set up to this God and to that God and to this temple. And you kind of, what do I look over there for that? Or do I look over there for that? Who do I sacrifice to? What? He's God saying, no, me. Have relationship with me. It also speaks of exclusivity. When you are looking at someone else's face, 
You can't look anywhere else. If you're looking into someone else's eyes, you're getting uncomfortable there, aren't they? I'm going to make you do that. Do you want anything to get the application, Jess? It's just going to be to stare into someone's eyes. That's what it is. That's <laughs> not. But it's, it's, it's exclusivity. If you are looking at one person alone, one face, you can't look anywhere else. You haven't got eyes for anyone else. You haven't got time or space for anyone else. And God is saying, when you'll have no other gods before me, you are to look into my face. You are to look at me. You are to have relationship with me. And no one else and nothing else can come in there. It's completely exclusive. And so this is the God of Israel speaking to his people. He has saved them. He has redeemed them. He has placed his love upon them as his treasured possession. And he has brought them out of slavery into a place of freedom. And he is leading them into the land he has promised them. And he's saying, I am your God. I love you. I am for you. You are to have relationship with me alone. Your response is to love me alone. Your response is to look to me alone because I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who looks after you. I'm the one who can satisfy you. These other gods, so-called gods around, they're useless. They're just dumb, mute idols. There's nothing they can do. I've proved myself to them by triumphing over them one after the other and bringing you to this place. And this kind of idea can be summed up in what um, they call the Shema, which appears in Deuteronomy. It also appears as part of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, it says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That is what they are called to do. It is a short, it is a commandment of love. It is a commandment of relationship. It is a commandment of focusing on God alone above everything else. And if we pull this over into the New Testament, what does it mean for us as New Testament believers? Well, we're kind of, Exodus was a long time ago. We've had the law, some of the law we don't kind of have to worry about now, although it teaches us much. What do we do now? Well, I want to take you from one mountain to another mountain. If you look in Matthew 17, there was another mountain. And Jesus went up that mountain with three of his friends, Peter, James, and John. And when he was on the top of that mountain, what happened? Well, there was clouds, and there was light, and there was noise. And a voice came from the cloud and said this, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And it said these three words at the end. Listen to him. Listen to him. The voice from the cloud that thundered out these commandments now says, Listen to him. It's all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. The New Testament Colossians describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. What was hidden on Mount Sinai, what was shielded from the sight of the people of Israel because they couldn't come into God's presence is now revealed in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus fully represents the one true God to man. Later, Paul writes in Philippians, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus even said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What this command is teaching us today is it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Jesus was, came to earth, he was both fully man and fully God, and he alone is the one we are to worship exclusively. He came to earth, he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we should have died. He rose victorious from death and now rules and reigns from ever. He redeemed us from slavery. We weren't, you might think, oh, what? we weren't slaves. We were slaves to sin, the Bible says. We were slaves to sin. We were hopeless and helpless. We were stuck. We were under God's right judgment for all the things we had done. And there was no way out. But Jesus came. He died on the cross in our place for us. And he took God's wrath instead of us. And as a result, we put our faith and trust in him. We are free to live. We are free to follow him. We are free to have an exclusive relationship with him. In him alone will you find freedom to live this life. And we are to put our total faith and total trust in him and him alone. The problem is we are tempted, just like Israel, to follow other gods, to follow other things. If we follow the story of the people of Israel, we find them failing in this area again and again and again. And the reality for us is other things come into our life that get in the way of Jesus, that come before his face, come into the exclusive relationship. It could be career, job, career. It could be searching after things of this world that money buy, better house, better holiday, better car. It could be something for our children. Got to get them into the best schools and train them up to pass the grammar school exams and that could be our focus. It could be sex and wanting gratification there it could just be simply that i'm the most important thing i'm the god in my life and the thing that comes before my face is what i see in the mirror every morning and that's the one i look at not jesus and those things are good things there's nothing wrong with a job or a house or holidays or kids or sex but if they become god things then we have a problem so let me just ask you a few diagnostic questions to maybe help you with this are you following after other gods are you following after other gods how about this what are you willing to sacrifice for what are you willing to spend your time and your money on maybe a review of your bank statement might help you Maybe a review of your diary might help you because they will reveal the truth more than the words of your mouth will. What are you willing to put that time and energy in to? Who comes first in them? What or in, what, what or in who do you find your worth? Where do you find your value? Is it in the job you have? the title you have at work, the position you occupy, the home you live in, the nice family unit. Is that where you find value? Because of that, I'm value. If that was taken from me, 
I wouldn't feel like I was worth, worth anything. What do you desire and long for? When your mind wanders, maybe in the middle of a sermon, <laughs> where does it go? What are you thinking about? What are your thoughts consumed on? The next thing, this thing, that thing, buying that, thinking about getting that, going there, doing this, maybe even, even another person. What do you desire and long for? What do you trust in? When push comes to shove and things go wrong, where do you go to? I've got savings. Everything's going to be all right. I've got a decent pension plan. Everything. I'm fit and healthy. I can work these out. I'm pretty smart. I can solve most problems that come my way. What do you choose to put your hope and trust in? Where do you find comfort when things go wrong? What do you turn to when you've had a bad day and things aren't going well? There's a problem at work or in family or in relationship. What do you turn to in those things? Because our call on us today as followers of Jesus is for him to be the ultimate answer in all those questions. He's the ultimate one that we find our hope in. He's the ultimate one we find our worth in. He's the one we ultimately desire and long for. He's the one that we trust in. He's the one we run to for comfort. He's the one we're willing to sacrifice our time and our energy for. And so... This command that we've looked at today, the first one, the key one, the fundamental one that all others follows, you shall have no other gods for me. That's the words of Jesus to us today. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus is the one true God. He is the one who rules and reigns in heaven. He is the one who has the ultimate demand on our life. And so I just want to challenge you now What have you put in the place of Jesus in your life? The Holy Spirit is here. He'll be working on you. It'll be the first thing that just came into your head. What have you put in the way of your life? What do you need to deal with now? What do you need to put aside so your eyes are only on one thing? Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to finish. Can the band come up? I'm just going to leave us in a moment of prayer to kind of just process this with us together. So do you want to stand? Maybe you just want to close your eyes. If you are a believer here, in Jesus Christ, you're a Christian, you're a follower. The first thing to state is you have been set free. You are no longer a slave. You have been redeemed from the curse of the law. You have been freed from slavery. You are righteous and holy. You are a saint. You have been adopted into God's family and declared not guilty before him. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. He is your Father in heaven and he loves you with a never-ending love. That is a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And there is nothing you can do today, tomorrow, the next day to make him love you less. It doesn't work like that. It's not like you've got to put money into the bank account to make it grow. It's already full. 
is overflowing. It has an eternal balance of God's love towards you. Jesus died on a cross so that you might be free. And that is a wonderful place to go. And God has called you to walk in that freedom. Yet, we still make mistakes, don't we? We still mess up. We still go off the rails. Our eyes still kind of get called the other direction. And so I just want to challenge you today. What in your life have you put before God? What in your life has come before you looking into Jesus' eyes? And if you know what that is and that's happening now, I think there's three things you need to do, and I'd love to just lead you through it. The first one is you need to confess, which means you need, what that means is you need to acknowledge before God what it is. And the beauty of this is, there's no surprises. It's not like Jesus is sitting there going, man, I didn't realize that was a problem in your life. He knows. <laughs> so all you're doing is acknowledging to him what he already knows. And so you need to just do that. Acknowledge it. Name it specifically that this is it. The second thing you are to do is to repent, which just means turn around, turn away, go the other way. I recognize this is the problem. And now I'm going to turn and I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to pursue Jesus. I'm going to go after him. I'm going to acknowledge my problems. And in doing that, you receive forgiveness because that is freely available. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, it says. So we get to do that. And the final thing, once you've repented, is to commit. Okay. Dealt with that. I'm now going to commit to follow you afresh today, Lord Jesus. I'm going to commit to go after you. I'm going to commit to put you number one in my life. What happens if you're standing here today and you're not a believer and you don't know Jesus and you're kind of standing observing? Well, I have to tell you the truth that you are a slave to sin. The Bible says you are like one of the Israelites in captivity in Egypt. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus wants to lead you out of that. <laughs> Jesus is the way to freedom. He is the only way to freedom. And the way you find freedom is by acknowledging your need for him, recognizing your sin, recognizing you have done many, many things to an offend a holy God, recognizing that you deserve the punishment for those sins before a holy God. But by putting your faith and trust in Jesus alone, he will forgive you. He's already paid the penalty for your sin. And he wants to lead you into freedom today. Put your faith and trust in him. And so if you know that's you, I'd love you to grab one of us at the end to talk you through that so you can pray and kind of earth that. But that's what's going on, what you need to do today. But what we're going to do now is we're going to respond. It's funny that that word at the beginning Sarah brought was about a mountain. <laughs> We've had two other mountains today. Are you going to reach out your hand and say, Jesus, I need you? Jesus, I want you. Are you going to look above the clouds and say, God, I need you? Because we're going to worship him. We're going to sing. We're going to put our eyes on him. And we sing through whatever season's going on, whatever's happening in our lives. Because God's on the move in this place. So let me pray. And we're going to worship. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here today. We thank you that you watch over us. Lord, we thank you that you came to earth as a man. You came through that cloud and you came to meet us where we were. Thank you that you took us by the hand and you led us out of slavery. Lord, thank you that we are now free to live before you. 
Lord, thank you that we are free to follow you. Lord Jesus, we pray today, God, fill us with your spirit that we may worship you and glorify your name. And God's people said...